Um, my name's Becky. You've had my husband a few times, and he loves this place. He talks about you guys. Um, and so it's, I feel like I kind of already know you, um, but it's a pleasure to be here. So we've got a, a little information table out the back. Please, before you dive out, please stop by the table and come say hi or come have a look at some information. We've got a few different books for sale. These are $7, but it, the, the money goes back into the work that we do. It doesn't go in our back pocket. If it does, it would have been 20. Um, no, that's a joke. Just um, British humor is not always great, so I apologize in advance for my jokes today. But um, I wrote a little book called Mother Boomala. So when I started, the village we work in is called Boomala B. It's literally in the outbacks of beyond. We are in the bush bush. So it's literally mud huts and us, and I love that. And um, we're not at all in the tourist areas of Kenya. We're very much remote. So there's no supermarkets. There's no, there's no nothing. It's literally mud huts and us. And um, the name of the village is Bumala. Now, when I started there in 2012, I foolishly thought everybody liked missionaries. I mean, I'm going to open up a home for their babies. I'm going to go and love on the village. And I thought everybody would love that. I was wrong. For the first two years of working there, my name was the White Witch. Not kind of the starting point I was hoping for. I thought, you know, God would open the way and everyone would be like, ah, oh, welcome. No, it was not that way at all. Um, but little by little, we started to break down the reputation of me being a witch. And um, it was through no big, massive thing. It was just through little acts of love. It was through sitting with them and eating their food in their mud huts, drinking their tea and wearing their clothes and trying to learn their language quite disastrously, I might add. I'm not good at languages, so I wish I was. But learning a little bit of not just Swahili, which is the national language, but also their tribal language, which has no rules. I like rules, like Spanish. There are rules, there are verbs, there are tenses, there are rules. I can follow that, I can get that. In their language, mm -mm, nada, it's, it's crazy. Um, but I'm learning little by little. So learning their languages and crying with them when they've lost yet another little baby to malaria. And little by little, the reputation began to change and they realized, praise God, that I'm not a witch. Hallelujah, Jesus. And they gave me a new name, which was Mother Bumala, which is the name of the village, which is incredibly sweet. So in this little book, if you know anyone who's passionate about missions, tell them to pick this up. It's got lots of different stories of how the work with One by One began. It was incredibly miraculous. I, um, I come from a, a very humble family. My dad was a postman and my mum was a cleaner. And I remember when I had this dream, I had the dream of a children's home at just 18 years of age. At the time, I actually wanted to go and study law, um, but I went out on a short-term missions trip and God spoke to me for the first time in my life. I'd never known God speak to me so directly before. And he said about running a children's home. And so I'd carried this promise of a children's home for years and years and years. Uh, I was given a piece of land in Kenya in 2009 and everything's exciting until I got the bill. And I got the bill for the children's home, which back then was 150,000 pounds. I don't know what that equates to in dollars, but I had nothing. So it may as well have been a million. Like I had nothing. And I know friends would often say, well, you know, did God say, are you sure God said? And you know, the Satan came up to Eve in the garden of Eden and his words to her was, did God say? 
and his tactics haven't changed today. You may be carrying a promise from God, and maybe it's not manifested just yet. Well, let me tell you, it takes more faith to wait than to run in and create an Ishmael in your life. And the enemy will undoubtedly come and say, did God say? But if you are faithful and hold on to that promise, Isaacs are coming. And I held on to my promise of this children's home. God brought in every single penny we needed. In the year that all the money came in, we spent the entire year in hospital nursing my little baby boy who had five major surgeries in his first year of life. Just nursing him, loving on him. Our whole heartbeat is to stop for the one. And little did we know we'd have to stop everything to stop for our own little one. But in that same year, in the very year of our vulnerability, of our weakness, of our not going and speaking in one church, God brought in every single dime. And we opened the home without one penny owing on it. And you know, if you just say yes to him, he figures out the where's and the wherefores if we just say yes. And as long as we stay close to him, you know, when we fall in love with Jesus, everything else changes. You know, the day I fell in love with Jesus, my life changed. I was nine when I gave my heart to him, but I don't think I really truly surrendered until I was much older. But he wooed my heart in such a way that it became easier to say yes. Not that the yeses are easy, but it became easier because in the light of him, why would I ever want to say no? Why would I ever want to hold anything back from him? When you fall in love with him and have a revelation, not a religion, but have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, everything transforms. And so we had the joy of opening the home. My babies have become my teachers. I see how they respond to situations. Kids who were abused by their own parents are now running up to me saying, Mama Becky, can we, can we go and share the gospel with my family? And they want to take the gospel, the love and the hope that they've found back to the very people who abused them for years. And I see Jesus. I see kids who have been traumatized. One of my little boys, Shadrach, his dad died and his dad was polygamous. He had three wives. His dad died and two of the other wives conspired together that actually if they killed off Shaddy's mom, they'd have a bigger plot of land to share amongst each other. And so they stoned her to death in front of Shadrach. Now, Shadrach was a little boy at the time, but he was old enough to know what was happening. Those then, those very, the people who murdered his mom were the ones then raising him. And that just astounds me. His big brother then became his hero. He's lost his dad, he's lost his mom. His big brother became his everything. That he became his role model, his hero, his everything. And the big brother reared some chickens just to try and help make ends meet except these chickens kept going missing. And so the big brother said, I'm going to wait up, I'm going to set a trap, and I'm going to stay up and see what's happening to my chickens. And so he did. He set a trap and he laid wait. And all of a sudden, he saw his uncle come in and stealing the chickens. So he went and challenged him and said, hey, we've got nothing. And you're taking the tiny bit we have. What are you doing? Well, the uncle was so mad. You see, in Kenyan culture, to challenge a man in authority, you don't do that. Now, for a nephew to challenge his uncle goes against the culture. The uncle was furious. So they all have, they, they call it their shamba, but it's their farm. Everyone's peasant farmers. When you're severely poor and there's no supermarket on the doorstep, you have to grow your food if you want to eat. And so they all have peasant farms and... Um, they have machetes often laying around because they grow sugar cane, they grow maize, and it has to be chopped down. The uncle picked up the machete laying in the shamba and went to attack his nephew. 
Mercifully, the big brother survived and the uncle got put in prison. Now, when Shadrach's telling me this story, I breathe a sigh of relief at this moment because this little boy's already gone through hell. And all of a sudden, he's lost his dad, he's lost his mom. And I'm like, okay, finally he's safe. But then he goes on to say, on the very day his uncle was released from prison, he was so angry and so bitter about his nephew that he came into their mud hut in the middle of the night. And in the same room, they all shared the bed together. He strangled the big brother to death right in front of Shaddy. Shaddy's now 17, and to this day, he still wets the bed every night because of all the traumas he's gone through. But I've seen something change in him in the five years he's been with us. I've seen him shift from a little boy who had no hope, who had no joy, to suddenly a little boy who realizes he's safe, he's loved, he's a child of the king. He knows he now has a heavenly father who adores him and has a plan and a purpose for his life. And I've seen Shadrach transform into a, from a very timid and shy and, and hurting little boy into a boy who knows who he is. And Shaddy, his, one of his passions in his life is to run. He'll go and run 20 miles and not even think about it. We have to have our missionaries there. We'll go on a bicycle to try and go with him and route it out and time him. And just, he runs. And, you know, it's so wonderful to champion that in him, to champion it in a little boy who had nothing and no one, who now has a passion for Jesus and a passion for running. And I believe that little boy is going to go far. I'm going to try and get him into some competitions where he can compete nationally. I believe God's got a great plan over his life. But I watch my kids and I see Jesus. I watch how my children respond in situations. And I think I want to be like that. I want to look like them because they look like him. And my children have become my teachers. And so it's an incredible honor to run the children's home. It's an incredible honor to be mother. I've got a, quite a few different titles in my life. from friend, daughter, pastor, missionary, whatever. But the greatest title of all is that I'm a mama. I'm a mama to my own little white boy but I'm a mama to hundreds of kids in Kenya, and that's my greatest delight. But not to be outdone by his wife. My husband also wrote a book. So for those of you who've heard Matthew share before, Matthew three years ago was given just a couple of hours left to live. He contracted a rare strain of malaria, and it began to attack his heart, his lungs, his kidneys, his liver, and his brain. He wasn't left with too much after that. And I remember the doctor taking him into a side room. They just had the latest pathology results back that said his blood was now at 50% filled with malaria parasites. Well, I'm a nurse by background, and if your blood is half overtaken with a parasite, you're a goner. And um, they said to me, look, the medicine's not working. We'll give him pain relief until he passes, but he's got two, maybe three hours left to live. She then looked at me and she said, you cannot go back to Kenya. She says, your little boy has already lost his daddy. She was already speaking about Matt in the past tense. He's already lost his daddy. He cannot lose his mummy. You cannot go back to Kenya. And with tears streaming down my face, I said, but you don't understand. You see, we've got kids out there who also call me mummy and call him daddy. How can we not go back? And when God gives you a, a promise, when God gives you a purpose for your life, it's not something you pick up when the going's great, but you put it down when it gets tough. It's something you run with. It's a mandate from heaven. And when the going gets tough, you run all the harder. You run all the faster and you lean into him. And when you do that, you see God do incredible things with just a heart that submits to his will, not our own. And he did an incredible work in Matt. Spoiler alert, but Matt's not dead. Hallelujah. 
is fit as a fiddle. And so he's documented his story in this little book. If you know someone who's ill, please put a copy of this in their hands. Again, it's $7, but it goes back into the work of One by One. But it's just a real faith stirrer, a real first stirring book. And I always joke with Matthew that I should have had a chapter in this with my version of the events, because there's some stories that are not in the book, but I'll let you into one. There was, it was tough while he was going through it. It was very, very tough. Um, I felt incredibly alone. It happened when we were in Alabama, so we were away from all our family and friends, and it was an incredibly lonely time. Matt was in and out of consciousness, but the nurses kept telling me, talk to him, talk to him. Well... After a few days, I ran out of things to say. You know, when he's talking to someone and they're not talking back, it gets kind of hard. And I ran out of things to say, which I think is a miracle. Um, but so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to sing to him. I'll sing him some worship songs. I love worship. I love Bethel. I love Jesus culture. I love hill songs. I love it all. I'll take it all. I love elevation worship and house fires. I love it all. But I'm sat by his bed and every single worship song imaginable went completely out of my head. I could not think of one. Not, it, it all just went. And so I'm sat by his bed, determined to worship, because that's what Paul and Silas did, so that's what I'm going to do. Determined to worship, and I can't think of anything. And the only song that came to my mind was Amazing Grace, the old hymn. And so I sang every verse of Amazing Grace to him. Matt's eyes shut, not responding to anything, completely, you know, sang Amazing Grace. He suddenly kind of prizes one eye open, and he says... That was nice, baby. Did you write it? <laughs> I wish. But, um, and that's not in the book. How rude. But, um, so there were some moments where it was kind of funny, where he was in and out of consciousness, and he would say things that just lightened it, and I needed those moments, trust me. Um, but we've seen God doing incredible work, so please pick that up. We've also got uh, a little magazine that's free. Ooh. <laughs> Let's try that again. Got a little magazine that's free. I know, right? And um, that's on the back table. It's got loads of different stories about what God's done, so pick it up. But I want to preach a word to you this morning called Touch the Wounds or Touching Wounds um, and about the power of touch. So when I was a little girl, I discovered something about Christmas that I didn't know before. I'm still seeing little people in the room, so I'm not going to say it and spoil Christmas forever. But you all with me? I discovered a fact about Christmas that I didn't know as a small child. You all with me? And so when I discovered this fact, my mother would then put the presents out early. So she'd have it all around the tree, days and days before Christmas, which as a kid is just cruel. That was cruel. And we couldn't, you know, we couldn't go up and open them, obviously. And so I would wait until mother was upstairs vacuuming. And she was vacuuming the carpet. And um, I would wait and think, okay, this is my chance. And I would sneak into the living room and there'd be loads of gifts for my sisters and I didn't care less about them. I wanted to find mine. And I'd go hunting through the tree and I'd find one for me. And I'd get it up and I'd want to touch it because there's something about touching something. I'd look at the paper. It gave me no clue. The bright red sparkly paper gave me no clue what was inside. But if I could have a touch of it, I could work it out what it was. Well, I am sure my mum must have had a spy cam in the tree. Like, I'm sure. Because she would know. And she would just, the second I got a hold of one of mine, she would dart through the room and be like, Becky! And she would always say this, you look with your eyes, not with your hands. But I just, there's something about touch 
that I really love. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to pick it up from verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. This was when Christ had been crucified and he comes back to life and all the disciples see except Thomas. So um, he said to them, Thomas said to his disciples, to the disciples, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again together and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me, but blessed are those that that have not seen and yet have believed. And many of the signs did Jesus do in the presences of disciples that are not written in this book, but they are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. We have life in the name of Jesus. That's incredible. But I've got to admit to you this morning, I've always kind of felt a little bit sorry for Thomas. You see, for generations upon generations upon generations, we now, we don't know Thomas as Thomas. We know him as Doubting Thomas. And I always kind of feel a little bit sorry that for this one moment in history, he probably did many other faith-filled things. But for this one moment in history, he's now recorded forevermore as Doubting Thomas. And just before we pick up our stone to throw at Thomas and say, how could you not believe? How did you not believe the other disciples when they told you? Especially being as Jesus already told them that after three days he would rise again. Thomas, how can you not believe? Before we throw that stone at him, just pause for a second and think of the moment in your life where maybe you weren't the one that was full of faith. Think for a moment in your life when it was your loved one that just received the diagnosis that said, actually, it's not going to work out how you want it to work out. Think about the moment in the job where you're supposed to get that promotion and you ended up getting laid off instead because the workload had gone. Think of those moments in your life and just pause for a second before you cast your stone at Thomas to think, well, how would I respond in that moment? And what I love is there's a scripture in Mark 9 where a dad has a son that's got seizures. The son has seizures and he often falls into the fire and it's he's, he's been traumatic since he was a child and the disciples try and pray over this, this boy but nothing happens and so the disciples bring this boy to Jesus and there's a conversation between the father and Jesus that's just beautiful where Jesus asks him, okay, how long has he, has he had the seizures and they start the conversation but then he says to him, the father says to Jesus, if you can take pity on us, help us. And Jesus says to him in verse 23 of Mark 9, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And this is what I love. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, 
Help me overcome my unbelief. And maybe you this morning are in a situation like I was three years ago, where you've heard words that you didn't want to hear. Well, maybe this morning you might not be the one that's full of faith. But if that's you, I want you to just come before him this morning and say, God, help me overcome my unbelief. And if we do, he will. The little boy was set free. And in the same way, when we bring our situations to Jesus, even when we are lacking in areas, God is merciful, he's kind. He's not waiting to hit us up the side of the head and say, come on, have more faith. But he's tender and he's gracious and he's merciful. And if we'll just come and say, God, help me in my unbelief, he will. But I actually want to look at the scripture with Thomas from a different perspective. You see, I look at the body of Christ today. I look at the body of Christ corporately and I still see wounds. I see wounds in the body of Christ today that still need touching. Jesus says to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. To reach and to look, they're not passive words, they're verbs, they're doing words, they're active. You have to actively do something. And the Greek for the word see is to see with the mind, to perceive, to know, to become acquainted with by experience. You heard it on the video, but in 2006, my life was changed because I perceived something through experience. I met a little girl on the streets called Felicity who was nine. She didn't have any shoes. And so I took her to the marketplace, bought her a pair of flip-flops that cost me 50, maybe 60 pence. That's probably a 70 cents, maybe 80 cents, I don't know. But a little bit of money, not much at all. And um, that night we were doing a big mass gospel campaign. So I'd spoke to all day long about Jesus, but I said, come back tonight and we'll take you with us to the gospel campaign. You can hear all about Jesus and see him do miracles. It'd be amazing. So sure enough, that evening, we're stood outside the hotel. The cars are lining up, ready to take the team. And little Felicity comes running forward and she's got a beautiful pink flip-flops on. And she said to me, should I wait in the hotel? I said, no, honey, we're going now. We're going to get in the cars. And she said, but shouldn't I wait in your hotel room? If she'd have looked at Matthew or one of the guys on the team, I would have known what she was saying. But here was a nine-year-old little girl looking at another young girl, asking if she should wait in her room. And I thought she couldn't possibly mean that. So I asked her a third time. And sure enough, Felicity thought I had spent 70 cents on her so that I could have her body. And she was willing to give it. And in that moment, an anger rose up in me, not at little Felicity, but an anger that said, as a nine-year-old, she'd gone through so much abuse living on the streets by both men and women that she automatically went there in her mind for the sake of 70 cents. And something rose up in me that said, that's enough. That's enough. You see, all it takes for evil to continue arising is for good people like me and you to tolerate it. But if we will just rise up and say, you know what, that's enough. When your family's riddled with sickness, to rise up and say, that's enough. I'm going to stand in the gap for my family and pray. When, it, when situations are going on in, in your environment, when kids are being abused, when lives are broken, all God's waiting for is people to rise up and say, that's enough. God, use me to cause a change. Use me to make a difference. And our whole heart is to stop for one. We plan to reach masses and praise God. Our schools team are already reaching up to 10,000 kids every single week with the gospel. But may we never lose sight of the one. But if we'll rise up and say, that's enough, even if it's just for one life, 
That's worthwhile. You see, I can't take a house to glory. I can't take a car to glory. I can't take finance to glory. But I can take my kids. I can take people with me to glory. And when I stand before my Savior, I don't want to stand alone. I want to stand with lives that I've brought the gospel to. And even if it's just for one, that's worth laying my life down for. And that's what we plan to do. So Felicity changed my life. It was no longer, I'd read about kids selling their bodies for a bottle of Coke. I'd read about it. I'd seen it on telly. But something shifts when a child looks you in the eyeball and thinks it of you. Something shifted in my heart that day that said, that's enough. You see, I reached out and I touched a wound and that wound touched me. Then Jesus says to him, reach your hand here and put it into my side. The King James Version on this is quite thoughtful. It said, thrust it into my side. The Greek word here is balo. It's actually where we get the English word ball from. And it means to throw, to cast, to pour out. You know, if we would just pour out our lives, if we would throw ourselves into the broken, if we would throw our lives into the ones that are hurting around us, then God can use us. You see, it doesn't matter what we know, but it's about what we do. You know, it's not just about head knowledge. Christianity has nothing to do with head knowledge. It's good to have the foundation. I'm thankful my father was a man who loved the word of God. As a child, I would walk in his room and find him weeping into his Bible. And as a little girl, I would think he was upset and say, Daddy, what's wrong? And he would always just smile at me. And he just had a fresh revelation from something he'd read a thousand times. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit had highlighted it. And it spoke right into his situation. He had a love for the word of God. And as a child to watch that, that was contagious. And it rubbed off on me. It's good. If you want a word from God, get in the word. Because that's what will ground you. That's what will hold you. But if it only ever becomes head knowledge, what's the point? You see, God's waiting for his people to arise. His people to arise and be willing to be his hands and feet in this hurting place. It doesn't matter what you know, it's what you do. You can know all about the meaning of compassion without ever feeling it. You could know the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word compassion, how it breaks down in the Italian meaning and all that in the Latin. Italian? Latin. Um, but if you don't ever feel it, it means nothing. But suddenly, once you become a participant in the lives of the broken and no longer a spectator, everything shifts. For me, that happened a couple of years ago. I was out in Kenya, and um, a mum came up to me at the school gates, and she said, Becky, will you pray for me? My, my child's been missing for X amount of months. So I started asking some questions, and she revealed that her and her husband had separated. There was real problems in the family. And so I did the typically British thing. I said, my nice, neat little prayer over her life. But the whole time I'm praying, I've actually rationalized in my head that actually her husband's probably come and took the child in the middle of the night to try and punish her in some way. Or, you know, that's how a child's gone missing. Except two days later, a second mum came up to me. It had never happened before and it's never happened since. But two mums in two days. And the second mum came and she said, Mama Becky... Will you pray for me? My little girl's been missing for five months. I started to ask her the same questions, except this time there was no marriage breakdown. There was no family problems. The little girl was doing well in school. There was no reason she would run away. All my rationalizations as to why a child can go missing were blown away by 
her story. And there was no reason why this little girl should go missing. No one had heard or seen anything of her for five months. I prayed with that woman, but I went away and something stayed with me this time. This time I couldn't rationalize away the problem. This time when I put my head on the pillar, the problem was right there with me. And I just felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You see, I'd heard all about A21 Campaign, which is a phenomenal organisation that helps girls who have been trafficked. It's run by a lady called Christine Kane. And up until that point in my life, human trafficking was Christine's problem. She's got that. Great. I'm going to focus on what I'm focusing on. We pastor a church in England. We run the children's home in Kenya. We work with gorgeous widows in Sri Lanka, helping them in the war-torn part of Sri Lanka, just lives that have been devastated there. We help them and their families. We kind of have a lot going on. We raise our little boy, and that, to be honest, is sometimes the hardest of the work. And we have a lot going on. And human trafficking, that's someone else's problem. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit has a beautiful way of just pressing you, just pressing you. When he wants you to do something, he has this unique ability of just pushing you gently until you either say yes or you say no. And um, as I began to pray, I felt that I was meant to do something. You see, all of a sudden, it was fine when human trafficking was miles away, but now it's in my doorstep. And that changed everything. And so I began to pray, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Now, by background, I was a nurse before I pastored with my husband. I was a nurse, a pediatric nurse, and I loved my job. But it was drummed into me in school. Prevention is better than cure. If you can vaccinate someone against TB, it's far better for both the hospital in terms of costs of drugs and also for the patient to get the vaccine rather than go through the illness. And so I thought, what if I applied that concept to human trafficking? What if I could get to the girls long before the traffickers? And so I began to do some research and I found out that actually a lot of girls are missing elementary school. They miss a week of school every single month simply because they don't have access to sanitary equipment. Things that as ladies just don't have to worry about, thankfully, in the West. But the girls in Kenya, in the remote villages, have no access to that. So when it's their week, they have to stay home from school that week and miss a whole week of school every single month. Well, by the time they've finished elementary school, they've missed a quarter of their education. That means that they don't have the chance to go on to high school because they can't get the scholarships. They've missed a quarter of education. They can't get the scholarships to go on to high school. And tragically, the traffickers know that. And that's when they come to our girls with these wonderful job offers of come work in the city for a rich family. Come clean for them. Come be a nanny for them. Come to the city. These girls are then never seen or heard of ever again. And I thought, what if we could get into elementary schools with reusable sanitary equipment that won't run out next month, but will last for several years, but also come and teach the girls all about human trafficking, the whens and the how, the, the tactics traffickers use, that the girls know all about it. They're not taken off guard. We empower them to say no to sex. And then the really beautiful part of the Dignity Project is we sum the whole day up saying, actually... No price can be put on your life because the highest price was already paid for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we've been able to take the gospel into places that are normally resistant. We've got an incredible schools team that are in 18 schools, but there are many more schools that don't want to know. We don't want your Christianity. We don't want to know about Jesus. We're fine. Thank you very much. 
but they're desperate for the Dignity Project. And now because of that, we're getting an open door into places that are normally resistant to the gospel. And we've seen literally thousands of girls give their hearts and lives to Jesus as a result. Now in a couple of weeks time, I'm going out to Pakistan with it. We're over in South Africa soon doing a Dignity Day. We're going to Cambodia where human trafficking is huge next January. And we're also in talks about taking it to the refugee camps in Iraq. Dark places are opening up for the Dignity Project and we get to go straight in with the gospel completely undetected. Hallelujah. I believe it's a strategy of heaven, A, to protect the girls from ever going through the abuse, but B, to go in with the gospel to places that would normally be closed. And it's all because we touched a wound. We touched a wound. A, a mom came to me and she had a gaping open wound that someone just had to touch. And because we touched it, we're now seeing thousands and thousands of girls be healed, be saved, and be protected from human trafficking. There's a power in touching. In Mark 8, there's a man who comes to Jesus, a blind man. If you've, if you've got it, turn to Mark 8, verse 22. It says, then they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He touched the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. Jesus said, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then the eyes were opened and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly and Jesus sent him home. Maybe you knew Jesus years ago. Maybe you've been brought up in church. Maybe you knew Jesus years ago. Maybe you don't. And you know what? If you don't yet know Jesus, today's a great day to get to know him. Today's the perfect time to come find one of the lead team and say, how do I come to know Jesus? Today's the day to do that. But maybe you knew him years ago. But life's kind of took over. Situations have took over that have not gone the way you hoped it would go. And you've been left with a skewed vision. Well, maybe today's the very day that you can come and say, Jesus, once more will you touch me? Once more will you touch my life that I can see clearly? That pains of the past won't hold me back? You see, the children of Israel were supposed to go on an 11-day journey, and it took them 40 years. And there's a beautiful scripture in Deuteronomy 1 where it says, Jesus came and said, you've dwelt long enough on this mountain. Maybe you're on a mountain of hurt. Maybe someone said something to you years ago and they kind of said it, a, a, a flippant statement, but it's hurt you. It cut you deep and you've carried the wound from that for years. And maybe that wound's starting to go a bit septic. Maybe that wound's starting to turn into bitterness. Hurt that leads to bitterness, that leads to unforgiveness. And from there, it's just all downhill. Well, maybe today... There's your opportunity to come and say, Jesus, will you touch me? Will you touch my wound? Will you touch the gaping hole in me? The hurt from years ago, I give it to you this morning that you might touch my life. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if that's you, if you've gone through something and you've got a wound and this morning you just want to say, Jesus, will you touch my wound? Then with every eye closed, will you just raise your hat and I'd love to pray with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Many hands have gone up. Father, I just cry out for everyone who just raised their hand. 
that God, we come before you with our wounds. We come before you with our hurt and say, Father, will you touch our wound this morning? That Father, would you turn this situation around for your glory? That God, you would do a work in our life. That Father, we know hurt people can hurt people. And so in the same way, we believe that healed people can heal people. And Father, for everyone in this place who's gone through hurt, who's gone through heartache, who's gone through a situation where disappointment has set in. Father, we come and we lay it at your feet this morning. We don't want to dwell on that mountain anymore. We were only meant to pass through that situation. And so, Father, we lay that situation. We learn that, we leave that pain at your feet that you can come and touch our wound. For your glory, Jesus. Or maybe this morning, you're not the one with the wound. Maybe this morning you're the one who's surrounded by wounds. Maybe God's asking you today to touch the wounds of the people that surround your life. Maybe it's a family member that's bitter. Maybe it's a neighbour that's housebound and can't even get out. Well, maybe that's the wound that this week you're meant to touch. Maybe it's a girl around the other side of the world that you can help support go through the Dignity Project. Maybe that's the wound you're meant to touch this morning. It doesn't matter what that wound is, but if we simply have our eyes open and a vision that's clear, we can see the wounds that surround us and we have the honour of carrying Jesus to those broken people. If that's you and you feel that challenge, then while still eyes are closed, just raise your hand and I would love to be able to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing, thank you. Father, I thank you for every life that's surrendered. For every life that says, yeah, Father, would you use me? Would you use my life to touch the wounds that surround us? Would you use my life to touch the hurting and the broken? Would you use me and with your love, allow me to touch some wounds? That Father, we would see you manifested through our lives. We would see your kingdom come in in our family in our neighbourhood, in our workplace, in our school, in every arena of our lives. Father, we want to bring you to the people. We want to carry your love, but we can't do that unless you first are carrying us. And so, Father, we submit all that we are over to you and say, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives. Not our will, but yours be done. In the mighty name of Jesus touch some wounds through us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.